0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. may be seated. Let me read another gospel reading this morning. It's from John 1, starting in verse 29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of the disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter." It's actually fascinating. The gospel readings last week, this week, and next week kind of all overlap one another. So last week was Matthew 3, which was the baptism of Jesus. But then today we got John's account of the baptism of Jesus and the calling of the first disciples. And then next week we're going to get also Matthew's description of the first calling, of the calling of the first disciples. And I think in some ways, these lectionary readings overlap and intermingle with one another to reinforce some of these messages about the revelation of Christ and the, uh, the first responders to, the first respondents to these, uh, these uh, uh, manifestations of who Christ was in the world. And I, I guess I love that about the church calendar. Um, the church calendar is not something that I myself was raised on when I was like a young a Christian. Uh, You know, we did, like, Easter and Christmas and and that sort of thing, but uh, that was about it. We paid more attention to, like, Mother's Day or July 4th than we did Christ the King or All Saints or Epiphany. And I think that I've come to so deeply have embraced the church calendar that sometimes it gets rather difficult for me to think about other aspects of Christianity in in certain seasons— Like, I recall being in a non denominational uh, environment a couple years ago. We were in Lent, not that anyone there really knew that. uh, And we were doing a hymn sing, doing a hymn sing, and someone called out a hymn, and we started singing it. and, And I realized this was totally an Easter hymn lots of lines about resurrection and victory over death. And I was like having all this dissonance, like having a hard time being like, This is Lent. No way we shouldn't be thinking about the resurrection yet. Give me all that downer stuff about sin and death. Now, that's a bit extreme. (laughs) I had to remind myself that, uh, you know, what Jesus said about the Sabbath is apt of the calendar. The Sabbath is made for people, not people for the Sabbath. The church calendar was made for us, not us for the church calendar. It can be a a great tool for spiritual formation, but I have to remind myself that it can be okay to do something like think about the resurrection, even during Lent. (laughs) And I had to do some similar reminding of myself this week as I've felt and am feeling a bit of dissonance within our lectionary reading, specifically our Old Testament lesson about the Passover and our gospel this morning about Christ as the Lamb of God. Part of me wants to be like, nope, not talking about sin, not talking about sacrifice. I mean, I wrote a whole liturgical note here today about this celebratory season with the incarnational cycle on the church calendar. Let's focus on that, a little, a little, things a little bit more cheery until we hit that atonement cycle in Lent. And yet, there it is. Our lectionary hands us, handed me, these passages and won't allow me to slide past so easily. And so here's what I had to realize or or embrace, that when in this epiphany season we focus on the the revelation, the celebration of the manifestation of the reality of Jesus Christ to the world, when we talk about uh, who he is and what he's done, we have to talk about the cross. We have to talk about his sacrifice We have to talk about him being the sacrificial lamb of God, for this is part of the totality of what Emmanuel, what God with us means. For Christ to be fully God with us, he became the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is striking to me that we get a bit of John the Baptist, John the Forerunner, uh, sort of a a bookend in in this season. Uh, You might remember when I preached back in December, you might remember, might remember the second Sunday of Advent when our gospel focused on this John the Forerunner passage, the, the, the classic passage from Matthew. It says, repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And here we are in the second Sunday after Epiphany with John the Forerunner once again. And John makes a lot of sense, I think, in Advent uh, when we have these themes of preparation and paving the way for the Messiah and we get these prophetic allusions. How does John make sense here, now, We got Jesus born. We got the angels and the shepherds and the magi. Aren't we done with John? But our lectionary says, no, no, we aren't done with John's message because John's John, that is the gospel writer's account of the forerunner, includes a slightly different nuance. With Matthew's portrayal of John, most of what we hear is, in fact, before Jesus enters the scene. John is the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So his calls to repentance and preparation were apt for our advent meditation on the coming of christ but we get a slightly different nuance here in john's portrayal early in john 1 jesus has already arrived in the narrative john 1:14 is uh, the fourth gospel's christmas if you will the word was made flesh and dwelt among us that's a bit abstract it's not quite the manger scene of luke but it is a nativity scene nonetheless So, by the time we get to John the Forerunner, we get to him on the next day in verse 29 of John 1, pointing not ahead to the coming Messiah, but pointing to the presently present Savior who has already arrived. Some of you know more about Christian art than I do, but I think it's a pretty common image, a pretty common theme in images of John the Forerunner to see him in a pointing gesture. And he'd be there in his camel hair suit or camel hair shirt and his leather belt, and he, he's pointing, gesturing at Jesus. And some of my favorite images have him holding a little scroll or a book, a sort of artistic dialogue bubble, uh, with that key phrase emblazoned on it, Behold the Lamb. So I think taken together uh, in the synoptics and in the fourth gospel, John both points forward to the coming Savior and points presently to the Savior who has come. So John's key phrase here, behold, the lamb, doesn't doesn't allow us to sever the incarnation and atonement cycles of our calendar. Rather, they are fused together in this component of the revelation of the reality, the total reality of Jesus Christ, the the reality that as Savior, he is also of consequent necessity the sacrificial lamb. And if there had been any doubt that incarnation and atonement should not be rent asunder, Our lectionary once again ensures we not miss this connection, which leads to the Passover in our Old Testament lesson. The scene in Exodus 12 is likely familiar. It describes the tenth and final plague that God sends upon the Egyptians uh, in an attempt to soften Pharaoh's heart to grant God's people freedom from slavery. Plagues 1 through 9 were dramatic and at times kind of gross, but they were ineffective So God commanded Moses and Aaron to tell his people, tell God's people, to prepare for the final plague, the death of every firstborn. All the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock were to suffer this fate. Now Paul teaches us in Romans that the consequences of sin is death. And this lesson is one that God teaches the Egyptians through the death of their own. But I think God also teaches his people this truth through protecting them from this consequence. God's people, the, one who follow, the ones who follow and obey God, they receive these instructions in order to protect them from these necessary consequences of sin. These instructions were to kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Touch the lintel and the doorpost with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the house until morning. And when the Lord sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. Yet the protection from death as a consequence of sin wasn't so much about avoiding death, it was more about transferring the consequences. The consequences of sin was still death for God's people. It was just that God provided them a substitute to transfer the consequences too. This blood for the doorposts came from a sacrificial lamb, a lamb that suffered a death not for its own sake, but for the sake of another. And hence the followers of God were passed over. They They did not suffer the consequences of death, but rather had their lives spared because of the blood of the sacrifice. I think our lectionary practically demands that we see parallels in these two passages of Scripture. Uh, I mentioned that often you see images of John the Forerunner pointing to Christ in a present moment, early in the fourth gospel. But what I find even more striking is that many a painter creates an intentional anachronism by placing John in his pointing stance at the foot of the cross, at that moment when his words of behold the Lamb of God are realized in all of their depth. In in this sense, John the forerunner in John's gospel, like in Matthew, does in fact point forward, but his gesture is not to the arrival of Christ, it's to the sacrificial death of Christ. Again, Paul tells us the consequences of sin is death, but the gift of God is life in Christ Jesus. The consequences of sin for the Egyptians was the death of their firstborns. God sent his firstborn to be the sacrificial lamb to protect all of God's people from the consequences of sin. And as the blood of the Passover lambs were smeared across the doorposts, protecting God's people from the consequences of Pharaoh's sin, so too does the blood of Christ, our Passover, in which we're baptized and by which we're fed. So too does this blood cover us and protect us from the consequences of our own sin. And I think, I think parallel is not quite the right description of the relationship between these passages. Foreshadowing or prophecy might be an apt genre, but rather I think that, I think that in a sense type and archetype are the best ways of thinking about the lambs of these passages the Passover lambs, and Christ, the capital L, Lamb of God. He is the archetype, the archetype of all sacrificial lambs, the archetype indeed of all sacrifice. The lambs sacrificed at the first Passover and of every other sacrifice only only find their meaning, their completion, in the sacrifice that God made himself in Christ. Article 31 of our Anglican 39 states this, The offering of Christ once made is that perfect redemption, propitiation, and sacrifice, and satisfaction for all the sins of the whole world, both original and actual, and there is none other satisfaction for sin but that alone. All sacrifices find their efficacy in the sacrifice of Christ. His is the the true, the central, indeed the only perfect offering for the sins of the whole world. But all other sacrifices, or so I think, are not nothing, rather they are efficacious insofar as they are joined or fused to Christ's sacrifice. Since the archetype has come and been enacted, there is no longer a need for blood sacrifice, no longer a need for blood to adorn our doorposts. Rather, we weekly offer our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and we annually chalk our doors with a cross that is a reminder of the one sacrifice accomplished once for all upon the cross for the sins of the whole world. In this season, we show forth and proclaim the revelation of the reality of Jesus Christ. Yet, we have to hold together the totality of this reality. Yes, that means the little baby asleep on the hay, and it means the teaching and the healing ministry, it means the broken lives mended, it means confronting authorities, raising the dead, the resurrection, and even eternal life itself. But the totality of the revelation of Jesus Christ to the world also means the sacrificial lamb, bruised, broken, bleeding, and killed on the cross, taking away the sins of the world. And Yet this is, perhaps paradoxically, actually good news. The gospel means good news, but you can't have good news without some bad news to compare it with. And the bad news is that unchecked, sin, death, darkness would reign supreme in the world. But the good news is that Christ has come to save sinners. Behold, in the city of David is born a savior, a saver. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate. The only one who could save us has come to do so. And so there's no dissonance with thinking about the cross, the sacrifice of Christ, and the atonement at this point in the church calendar. This is the epiphany made manifest in this season. And this is good news. It's it's good news for us to proclaim. But I like to think also this is good news for us to embrace. God has embraced us. God has come so near to us so as to be with us that he became one of us to protect us from the consequences of sin. Have we embraced God back? Have we received this good news as good news for us, for you? It is good news for you. The gospel is not some abstract concept, good news for the world or good news for other people. Yeah, that's true. John said Jesus was the true light, which gives light to everyone coming into the world. Jesus came to the world, yeah, but he also came to you and to me and to each and every one of us. It's good news for everyone, but it's good news for you too. Do you receive this? Do you accept this? Do you believe that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has taken away the sins of you? Then in response to his sacrifice, let us offer our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, our sacrifice of worship and gratitude in this and in every season, and join with John the Forerunner in revealing Christ to the world as we point to him to proclaim, Behold the Lamb of God. Amen.